there must be something good going on through those doors because those kids sprint out of here. Good morning. You're Presbyterians, but you're allowed to answer back. Good morning. It is good to see you. It's good to be here. My wife and I thank you for the privilege of being here and for the friendship that this church is already extending to us. Uh, My wife, Stephanie, is down here in the front. She won't like me pointing her out, but I'm not here without her, so I want to give her my gratitude as well. And also, my kids send their greetings. Um, Knox, I love you, but you you left out a kid. Uh, We have four kids. I'm not sure. I'll, I'll I'll let them decide which one it was. We have four kids. We have four kids in college. That is not why we are living on support, but it could be. Um, we have two that are at Mississippi College, a sophomore and a senior, and then we have two more that are at Covenant College, two seniors there. So we have a sophomore and three seniors uh, between Mississippi College and Covenant College, and they send their greetings, and um, none of them, could, none of the guys came down from Jackson to be here or anything, but they send their greetings, and we are glad to be here. It's, it's a privilege, like I said, to be in this pulpit and to be at this church to have the friendship that we're already building with people here. We are very, very thankful for for the connection that you're already having with the coast. God is at work in Ocean Springs. I've been a pastor for over 25 years, and I've never seen God move ahead of us like he's doing to reach a town where 85, you talk about foreign missions, 85% of Ocean Springs will tell you that they are not believers, that they are not Christian, that they don't want to be. Many of them have a post-church, de-church story. And so, we, yes, we're going to build a church, but we're going to build it out of missions and evangelism. We're praying that there will, in a few years, be a thriving church in Ocean Springs, and we're praying that it will be made up of people who today do not know the name of Jesus Christ. We're praying for God to work in that way. Uh, there is more information. I don't want to make this a commercial, but we've got some information out in the missions hallway and back in the narthex Uh, newsletters and ways that you can find out more, things like that. But this morning, turn with me to the Gospel of Luke. Tonight, Lord willing, I hope to talk to you about Jesus' mission for his church. But this morning, I want to talk to you about Jesus' heart for the lost. We're going to turn to Luke 15, to a series of parables here in the first 24 verses that Jesus is teaching not long before the end of his ministry, and that's significant. This is in the shadow of the cross. And Jesus knows that the time is short and that the words are urgent. So he's speaking to his disciples of things that they must know before the end. Things that they must know about why he does what he does. And, and it comes in teachings that, that are in the, the form of simple truths. A lost sheep and a lost coin and then a lost son. What is God's heart? What what just makes God's heart go out in love and grace and compassion? How does he seek the lost? How does he seek us? Let's read together. From Luke 15, I'm going to read the first 24 verses. This is God's word. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. 
And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them with this parable, What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And he said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that, of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. No one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still, was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. This is God's word. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for your heart that we find in your word today. Lord, may we see it and be drawn by it as you draw us to yourself. Lord, may we hear today with the, with the ears of those hearing for the first time of the grace and the love and the mercy of Jesus Christ. Lord, I thank you for this church, and I pray that your spirit would be at work in her, that the gospel would go forward from this church like never before, and that many lost people will be drawn to you through the ministry of this church. Lord, bless the moments 
Protect this people from anything that I would say in error. And Lord, may your word alone be held forward. May the messenger disappear. May we hear your word and see your son, Jesus. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Knox mentioned earlier that that before coming to Ocean Springs for 20 years, I was a senior pastor, eight in Birmingham, and then before that, 12 years in East Tennessee, literally right up against the side of the Smoky Mountains. My kids to this day still call their home and their childhood the Great Smoky Mountains, and it was a privilege to live there, and we were every weekend into Cades Cove and camping and hiking, and just what a wonderful place to raise kids. And when you live in a place like that, there's one thing you can count on. You're going to have a lot of visitors and a lot of company. You live at a vacation place, that's what happens. And sure enough, one, one weekend, a good friend of mine had come. He was a single dad and had brought his son with him and, and all of our kids together were little and we went into the park to, a, to my favorite waterfall in the Great Smoky Mountains. It's actually a secret waterfall. It's not on any map. It's not on any trail listing. You have to know where it is to find it. Be really nice to me afterwards and I'll tell you, okay? But, but we'd gone and I was showing him this, this waterfall and we were, the, we were there and it's beautiful. It's sort of three levels and a pool there and and, of course, the kids, as soon as we got there, it was, a, it was a warm summer day, and there's the cool waterfall and the water and the, uh, you know, the salamanders and all of those things. And so the kids want to go play. And my kids were used to it. They just sort of jumped right in and started. And my friend's son said, hey, can I go play too? And my friend said, yes, you can. But he warned him. Of course, as, if you know anything about waterfalls, as wonderful as they are, there's a danger there. The rocks are slippery. There's algae and moss and all these things that little boys love, but, but it's dangerous to be around them too much. So my friend warned him, said, yes, go play with the other kids, but stay off the rocks. Kids went to play. We began to talk. Of course, when you tell little boys, stay off of something, where is the first place they go every single time? So really within just a couple of minutes, my friend and I were talking and and his son had gotten up on some of the rocks and he slipped and he fell and he, and he injured himself, actually significantly, not life-threatening, but, it, but enough that he needed medical attention and, and there was cuts and blood and, and, and he cried out for help from his dad. And I was watching my, my friend and looking and talking with him and I, so I saw his face when he turned and saw his son, and in a flash, there were two things. One was the disappointment and the righteous anger. Why had his son disobeyed him to his own harm? But at the very same moment was the concern and the care and the, and the desire to get to his son as fast as possible and to help him. And so my, my friend jumped down from the ledge where we are and, and went out through the, the water and, and the side of the waterfall and, and scooped down to his son and, and picked him up and, and began to, to carry him. And we were going to go quickly to, to find help. And any parent here understands the reality and the presence of both of those feelings at the, at the very same time. In, in, in fact, in some ways, you probably can't be a good father, a good parent, without knowing both of those 
that both of those expressions of love, to, to be a father means to always reach out, to restrain, and to protect, and to warn. And it also means to reach out, to help, and to rescue. And when my friend reached his son, he, he actually, he knelt down in the mud where his son was hurting and he picked him up and he, and he got the mud and the blood on himself. And, and I remember that picture as, as my friend re- started to run back down the trail to get help. And the good news, my friends, that I want to share with you this morning is that your God, your God does the very same thing. He runs to meet you where you are and where you've been. And he even offers, more than my friend, he offers his own son in mud and in filth and in the blood of this world's brokenness. He covers his own son with blood to rescue you where you've fallen. And this morning, my prayer is that, is that you will see so clearly the, the love of God, the love of a father who runs to you. And, and in looking at that God, in looking at that Savior, I, I pray that we will see how that points the way through one of the most difficult things that we ever face if we call ourselves followers of Jesus Christ. And it's the issue of how, do we, how are we to be warning people that we love about the reality and the danger of sin? And yet how at the very same time are we to be incredibly loving and compassionate and welcoming and rescuing of those who fall? To, to hold both aspects out, the warning of sin and the rescue of sinners, it's so difficult, especially in a culture the, where we now live in where, where any no, any boundary is seen to come from intolerance and, and, and hate, not love. And you understand, there are people who with good cause when they hear that we reject their sin, will be afraid that we will reject them as sinners if the truth were ever to be known. So they don't come to us. They don't share with us. They don't come to our churches for healing. And it's the very issue that Christ is dealing with in this chapter. Verse 2 shows what he's struggling with. Look, look back at the beginning at, at verse Verse 2, it says, the Pharisees, and the, these are the religious people, the people who had it all together. They grumbled, and they're saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. This man welcomes sinners. He hangs out with them. The, the whores and the thieves, Jesus calls them his friends. And you hear the accusation, this guy claims to be from God but he's soft on sin. And, and, and standing before Jesus are all sorts of people, the churched and the unchurched, the righteous and the unrighteous, <coughs> those who are hating themselves and those who are hardened and those who are hurting. What does Jesus say to let them and us know that he does condemn sin but that he receives sinners. He begins to tell some parables. 
Parables that are intended first to show how sin operates. Think of how these three parables line up and how they work together. First, he he speaks of, of a sheep that wanders away. There, there's no deliberate intent here. The, the sheep is just going from one clump of grass to another to another, and, and he sort of leaves the security of the flock, and he moves to the edge because, after all, the grass is always greener, and he makes his way out and eventually just wanders away. Although he was once in the bosom of the shepherd, he's now gone. And if we're honest, we know what he's talking about. We, we all know people who once seemed so close to the Lord, and now they, they're, they're gone, they've wandered. We know those people. Maybe, maybe we've been those people. And somehow, somehow without realizing it, we just wandered away from where we once were. And we're not that close anymore, and we're at a different place. And then he tells a parable of a lost coin. This is not a sheep who wandered. No, someone else lost it. It was the action of somebody else. And here we think of the innocent who are hurt by sin. Perhaps it's a child raised in a non-Christian household, and so they're lost by people who have led them astray. Or perhaps it's a child raised in a hypocritical or, or angry Christian household. And they're lost because the message of the gospel is not there either. Maybe it's negligence. Maybe it's abuse. Maybe it's parents who should have been nurturing, but they were too caught up in their own careers, their own lives, their own struggles, their own marriage. Maybe it's a child from a legalistic church background where the gospel always seems to come with anger and more rules. Or maybe it's a seeker in a liberal church who who would like to know if there's truth, but they're, they're sitting somewhere where the gospel is not preached. And finally, they stop searching because the gospel is not there either. And they're lost. Finally, there is a son. The son doesn't wander. He's not lost by another. No, with this one, his, his, this son is, his sin is open, willful, deliberate rebellion. He turns in anger against his family and against his God and abandons him. And once again, we know those people. Maybe we are those people. Maybe even others, can I, can I be honest with you this morning, even as we sit on, in our pews and everything seems fine and others don't even know about it, maybe it's just in our hearts, but we know. We know the rebellion. We know the cause. We are prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. That, that comes from that hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, that was written by a man named Robert Robinson, who, who wrote the hymn and then fell away from the faith for years until one day he was riding in a stagecoach. A, a stagecoach was the shared Uber of the day, and he's riding in the stagecoach, and, and he hears a woman humming that hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, the one that he wrote. And he said to her, Madam, I am the poor, unhappy man who wrote that hymn many years ago, and I would give a thousand worlds if I had them to enjoy those truths again. 
It's true of you. It's true of me. Prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. And, and in all of this teaching, Jesus is showing how sin operates. Look at its nature. Look what it does. He's not pulling punches. Sin destroys lives. It hurts innocent people. It causes rebellion. But more than just showing how it operates, Jesus is showing what sin does. It's, it's damage and it's horror. He tells of a young man of privilege and wealth. A man with, with all of the love of family and hearth and home around him. But a man who leaves by his own choice with no disregard at all for the impact on those around him. You understand what's really being said when a son goes to a father and says, I can't wait. Give me my inheritance now. You know when an inheritance is given? This son, raised by a loving father, looks his dad in the eye and says, I wish you were dead. But since you haven't died yet, at least give me the money. And then he takes that money. He takes his father's money and wastes it on wild living. That term is is given further explanation actually later in, in verse 30. In verse 30 of, of this chapter where, where it says, um, but when this, when this son of yours came who, was, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. There, there's no doubt what had gone, gone on here. This man who had all sorts of privilege and, and love and now he is a slave to sin and he's, and he's wasted it on wild living and, and, and wine and women and all these things and to the point where when it's all gone, he finds himself salivating at the slop of pigs. And we're meant to see the effect. Sin is horrible. It destroys families. It destroys lives. And Jesus, in telling that parable, is telling us his view of sin. He's warning us because he loves us. And, and, and if he says it, then we who follow him must be clear to say it as well. As difficult as it can be in this culture, we must call sin, sin. We must put on display its horror and condemn it with white-hot anger. Anger not at the sinner, but at what sin does to people. At what it does to the glory of God. We must say that sin is sin. No matter how much the voices of our culture tell us to be quiet, we must speak up. And it sounds so simple. It sounds so clear. Until you have to do it among people whom you love, who are sinning. It's one of the hardest things that you will ever have to do to really be so involved in relationships and with people's lives to be, to be speaking both love and truth and, and to carry both at the same time, it will lead to much pain and many sleepless nights. 
You know it in your own families. You know it from your relationships with, with relatives or friends. There are so many times, and anyone in church ministry knows this, the burden and the pain of trying to, to speak the truth and yet to carry love at the same time. I, in my years as a pastor, have had to do it from the pulpit and the counseling room and even the bars. There was a time that, that a man in my church was, was leaving his family and, and on his way out the door, and, and I saw a family being destroyed, so I went to look for him. When that's going on, the, they stopped returning the call from the pastor and the elders. He was on the run. He was on the lamb. And, and so I started driving around town. So I was car outside the local watering hole, the local roadhouse, and parked and went, okay, here it goes. And I thought I was going to get a bar fight inside as I sat down with this guy and said, you must not do this. The lives of your wife and your children are at stake. And you will have to do it. If you, if you really love people, you will you have to warn them that, that sin will harm them now in the, and in the life that is to come. God gave us the example in ways that we must not mistake the message. He says you must not shrink back from what is difficult. You are in a battle for souls. And we won't win that battle if we, if we have one ba- hand tied behind our back and, and if we're quiet. We must be speaking. We must be bold. But as much as we as Christians are to be condemning sin, we must also, like our Savior, extend the hand of compassion to sinners. God gave us the example in ways that we must not mistake this as well. That on Good Friday, he could point to his son on the cross and God himself could say, look, this is what I think of sin. This is what sin does. This is what sin costs. And at the very same time, he could say, look, this is what I think of sinners. This is how much I love them, enough to do even that. It is the message of of verse 5 in this passage where he speaks of the shepherd. He says, when, when, when the, the shepherd, the sheep has been lost, and he, and he leaves the 99, and he goes and he finds it, and it says in verse 5, and when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. The shepherd goes and looks, and, and he finds him, and he doesn't say, okay, sheep, come back. The sheep has wandered away, but the shepherd takes the burden on his own back. It is the message of the gospel. That what God requires of us, he takes upon himself. We could not do what is right. We could not be righteous. We could not be holy. The burden of our sin comes upon us, and when we see it, it shames us. God has required these things of us, and we have failed, we have rebelled, we have turned against him. And when we see it, we cry out in anger, God, I, 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 in despair, God, I can't do it. So God, our Father, says, then my child, I will take it. And I will put it on my own back when I put my son on the cross of Calvary. And my friends, see it. See the message of the gospel, that this is the joy, the wonder, the hope 
that, that the burden is now taken. See it. And when you see it, see how God himself responds, not just to sin, but to sinners. Look at verse 20 again. Really the key verse of this whole chapter. It says, He arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. The word there, while he's still, a far, still far off, it actually is the same word that's used for the son being in a far country. While his son was still gone is what it's saying. Now, that's, that's not saying that the father, when he looked and saw him, it's not saying that the father has a telescope or a GPS and is, and is watching on YouTube live or something. No, it's speaking to his state, his, his heart, that is always for his son. And, and none, of the words, none of the son's words of repentance have been spoken yet. Understand, the son hasn't done anything to make it right yet. And yet the father sees him. And loves him. And runs to him. I want to ask you a question. And again, I know you're Presbyterians, but it's okay to answer out loud. In this parable, who does God, who who does the Father represent? I just tipped it. Who does the Father represent? God. By the way, when you're in church, it's okay to say God. You know, you know, it's, you know. He represents God himself. And do you realize how surprising that is? Do you realize how irreverent that is? This would have been an older father. Middle age or more is setting in and he's, he's got the, the belly now. And he's got, the, he's got the long robe. You know, I don't normally wear a robe when I preach, but maybe it's good to this morning. He, he's, he's got the long robe down, down to the floor, and, and he's got those, those Middle Eastern, you know, Jesus sandals, you know, that, that flip and flop when you try to run. And, and here's this older man with, with the robe and the sandals, and he's running and he's huffing, and he's puffing, and he's, he's just, he wants to reach his son. And that's God? Yes, that is God. That is how God, our Father, presents himself, that he, that he humbles himself, then in the form of a son, that he might run and claim you, and me. <clears throat> One with words better than mine, a poet put it this way The fatted calf, the robe, the shoes, the ring, all for him, unworthy son. Sweeter still, this more amazing thing we see God run. What an amazing thought that God is so loving. That even though this man had been in the stench of pigs, God still runs to him. You know what it would be like to work with pigs in our culture. When I was a pastor in East Tennessee, my elders and I, 
we, we would not have the session meetings at the church. It's too, it's too official there. Elders need to learn hospitality and hosting and, and ministry. So we had our session meetings. We rotated around to elders' houses so that they could practice ministry. And, and that was wonderful, except for one of my elders lived next to the largest pig farm in the state. You could smell it from miles away when you went to his house. Sometimes he'd call me up and say, hey, pastor, come over, let's have lunch. I'd say, no, why don't I meet you for lunch somewhere? But, and, and so we know it from our own culture, but in Jewish culture, these were the most unclean of unclean animals, and to, and to be around them at all, to associate with them at all, was to be unclean to the worst degree. And here's the son who's been wallowing around in their mud and their filth, and yet the father runs to him to embrace him. You know, it, it breaks my heart when I, when I read the part where the prodigal is there. He's come to his senses and he starts rehearsing a speech in preparation. Before he has the courage to go and face his dad, he begins to go over, okay, well, when I'm there, what am I going to say? And can you feel the, the fear and the anxiety and, and the shame? I have felt that so deeply. I have prepared speeches in my own head. But then look what happens. He comes and he, and he gets a, a hug from the father before he can even start his speech. And then once he does start, he sort of pulls out the notes and he starts to speak. And, but before he can get halfway through it, the, the father interrupts him. A loving interruption. And he throws a party. Let me lean in this morning and speak very honestly to, to those of us who have been prodigals and wandering sons and daughters. Stop rehearsing your speech. Stop trying to just get it right. And come home. Just come home. You may have heard these verses many times. This is a parable that we know so well. But you may struggle to accept them or to believe that they are for you personally. You may believe that they're true for other people. But, but is this story, is it true for you? Maybe there are voices from your past saying, saying you are not worthy being loved. I want to tell you today, even you, based on the inerrant word of God, you are a perfectly loved Son or a perfectly loved daughter of a perfectly loving father. And I hope you've not been to the edge of despair like I have. Some of you have and some of you will. But today I want to speak to those who have weariness of heart and soul and life. If you can resonate, if you can connect, if you can, if you can feel the hopelessness of this young man and the pain and the fear and just wanting the pain to stop, hear this invitation. Jesus knows it all. And he loves you with a love that will never let you go. And the primary way, get this, out of, out of everything in Scripture, the primary way that our God identifies himself in relationship to you through his gospel is not as a distant ruler or an uninvolved taskmaster. 
nor as an angry deity just waiting to condemn you and, and get you with the thunderbolts and the lightning. No, the primary way in, in all of Scripture, the, the way that our God identifies himself in relationship to you through the gospel is as a perfect, loving, accepting, proud of his children, Father. And think of what that means for us today. Even us as, as a church, can I include myself with you? What does it mean for us as a church today to know the gospel in that way? What would it mean for us to embrace people who have the, the stench of pigs on them? God ran to him and embraced him. <clears throat> Understand, the son was in the wrong. Nothing here ever ex excuses that. And yet God claimed him and embraced him and called him his own. Church, are we willing to do the same? To get their mud and their hurt on us. To taste the salt and the tears they've cried because we're so close to them. And, and to say, yes, you are a sinner, it's true. And there are consequences uh, of your own choices but the grace of God is for those who do not deserve it, like you and like me. And as, and as one who knows the embrace of a father when I have stunk like a pig, I want to be part of running to you and welcoming you and embracing you. Friends, understand, I believe in preaching. It's what I've done for over 20 years. I believe in the sufficiency of the word of God. I believe in apologetics. It, it, again, it, I've built a career on it. But I also believe that a well-reasoned theological answer rarely ministers to the unbeliever or hurting person as deeply as us being willing to run to and be present with them in their questions and in their pain. We have to listen to them, to really listen. We have to show up and to be willing to enter into, not, not in, enter into their sin, but to enter into their lives. That while they are still a long way off, we, we have to have our eyes on the horizon that we would be willing to, <clears throat> to run toward them and look for opportunities to embrace and to love. And in our willingness to to enter into their brokenness, to be with them in their pain, we become a model of a God who puts his own son on the cross that he could then run to sinners. What God is telling us in this parable is it is in the shattered places with broken people that we are most near to the heart of of Jesus Christ. Embracing grace that will change them as it first changes us. Do you know why still today we, when service members are away, when, when someone has a soldier, an airman, a, a sailor, you know, when there's someone in the family who's away overseas in the service, what do we, do we still have that tradition of putting a yellow ribbon around the tree, right? Waiting for them to come home. Do you know where that came from? 
I'm going to date myself, and some here, like, like me, are, are thinking of that hit song from the 70s. Tie a yellow, I won't sing it, that would empty the church, but, but uh, tie a yellow ribbon around the old oak tree. Well, long before Tony Orlando had a hit song, a preacher named Charles Hodge told a true story. A story about a young man who got involved in a wild lifestyle. And because of that, he was caught and tried and arrested and convicted and, and he went to jail. And the hurt of his life and the hurt of what had happened broke his mother. And she died in agony over her lost son. And years later, when the son was ready to be released, he wrote ahead and he said, Dad, I know what I've done. And I shamed mom, excuse me, I shamed you. And I killed mom. But I'm going to be released from prison and I would like to come home. He said, if, if it's okay for me to come home, he said, I'm, I'm going to be, when I'm released, I'll be riding home on the, the train and the tracks that run right by our farm. He said, if it's okay for me to come home, then would you put just, just one white flag out on that tree that's out by the tracks? And, and if I see it when, when I'm coming, if I see it, then I'll know that I can come home. But if it's not there, then I understand. And I don't blame you. And I'll just keep writing. Can you feel the anxiety of the sun? As he boards that train, not knowing what's ahead. And, and then, as it would have been inevitable, you know human nature, he's going to talk to somebody, he's going to tell them. And, and so people in the train with him, they know what, what could be or, or what might not be. And they're wondering too. And, and then after a while, the, the terrain and the landscape and the countryside be, begin to be familiar. And he knows he's getting close. And can you feel the, the anxiety that would be building inside of him? And the questions and the doubt and the regret and the shame that grow with every clatter of the tracks. And that son, when he came around, when the train came around the curve and he, and he looked out the window and he leaned out, he did not see a white flag. He saw 100 white flags over every square inch of that tree. It was the message of a father saying, son, Come home. And my friends, that is exactly what your God has done for you. Here is a flag in this parable. And if you miss that, here's another one and another one all saying, come home, child. And if you miss that, he didn't just put a flag on a tree. He put his son on a tree so that you could not mistake the message. The child that was lost is loved. And that child is you. And God claims you. And he calls you. And he says, even now, yes, you have been wrong in so many ways. There are things that, that are not right that is true. But come home, my child. Come home. For Jesus' sake, and because he loves you, come home. 
And through Christ, through his gospel, that is the love that claims you this morning. And so the promise comes. The fatted calf, the shoes, the robe, the ring, all for me, unworthy son. Greater still, this is the most amazing thing. God comes to meet me, and I see God run. Pray with me. Father, would you let us see our sin and our unworthiness clearly today? But let us see Jesus Christ even more clearly. Teach us the lessons of grace deeply and well to the glory of Jesus Christ. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.